You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. We're going to continue on in our series on 1 Corinthians. We're in chapters 12 to 14, sort of a series, as you know, within a series. Uh, We've been in 1 Corinthians for about a year and a half. We've been in chapters 12 to 14 since September. We have two more weeks in chapter 14, and then we'll jump ahead to chapter 16, spend a couple of weeks there, and then we'll put this series to bed. We're skipping chapter 15 because we jumped ahead, if you remember, last Easter and went through chapter 15, then in a a resurrection series. So we're looking at verses 26 to halfway through verse 33 this morning. So if you have a Bible in whatever form on your phone or your own personal Bible, or you just grab one of those Bibles in front of you, you want to find that text. Uh, But before we start walking through it, let me, let me pray for our time. So, Father, uh, what we have not, please give us. Uh, what we are not, please change us. And what we know not, uh, please teach us. To the glory of your name and our good, I pray. Amen. I want to start with a question today. It's a question that you can wrestle with in your CGs perhaps this week. Uh, The question, very simple one, but maybe doesn't have a simple answer. And the question is, what should mark the church? (coughs) What should mark the church when it gathers or comes together? What should mark, what should be the marks of a church when it comes together? Now, I'm not asking what are the marks of a church in general. Uh, There is a ministry called Nine Marks. Uh, Some of you perhaps have heard of it. They talk about nine marks, nine marks that should make up every, every church, should be demonstrated, manifested, clung to in every church. What I'm talking about is not that. I'm talking about the coming together corporately like we're doing this morning. What should mark this time? What should be the things that we say are non-negotiables? They have to show up every time we come together. I'm asking the question because that's the question Paul begins our passage with. When he asks, and you can look at verse 26, when he asks, what then brothers? In other words, what Paul is asking here, in all that I've taught on the gifts of the Spirit over the last three chapters, and specifically the gift of tongues and prophecy, which he spent much of the time talking about in chapter 14, what then, brothers, should it look like when you come together? You can see that in verse 26 as he carries on. So that's the question that we're going to answer today, the best we can, at least in part, Uh, But before going there, why should we care? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons why. One is, and this is rather obvious, you should care because you're a part of the church, a a church, a a local church, or perhaps you are thinking about being a part of a, a local church, and that's why you are here today. And therefore, I think you should have clarity and you should have conviction when it comes to this question. You should know what are those things that are non-negotiables that should show up in the church, both in general and, like I've said, in the gathering in particular. So I think you owe yourself that. I think if you come to a 
a person in leadership of a church and you say, what are the non-negotiables when you, you should have someone give you an answer. That's why we have a members class, for example, so we can answer some of those questions. I think you should do your due diligence in that way. A second reason, and it's tied to the first, and this is more personal, is because I've known a few people over the years who have been part of a church, a good church, who, who moved out of the city. Uh, some of them had had to move because of jobs or because they had to take care of a family member or whatever. But I've also known people who have moved out of the city and had a choice to move. They could have stayed, but they chose to move. And over the years, if I've had the opportunity to speak into people's lives before they've left, I've always told them, please, please, please make sure there is a good church nearby before you make the decision to go. Make sure that that, the, that that is the highest of priorities because, and the reason why I say that if I have a chance, is because I've had too many conversations with people who have chosen to move and they have told me after the fact that they just couldn't find a good church nearby. And they'd moved and hadn't considered that before they chose to leave, move to a new location. And why this is so sad is because amongst those people who have shared that with me have been those who have just fallen away, either fallen away from the church itself or fallen away in faith because they were doing life alone, or many of them just choose to do church online. And so those are a couple of reasons why I think this is really important because many of you will move from Vancouver and go to other places. And I hope, I hope you ask this question before you go. So back to the question, what should mark a good biblically faithful church when it gathers? Five marks, five marks coming out of today's text, if you like taking notes. But the first, I hesitate even giving because it seems rather obvious, but perhaps it's not so obvious. And so I'm going to give it anyways. Here's the first mark. A church should, number one, come together. That's the first mark. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers, when, not if, when you come together, which means what? It means Paul assumes they will, which makes sense. Because the church, the word church, ecclesia in the Greek, literally means assembly or gathering. Quite literally, you could read verse 26 as when the assembly assembles. Now, the assumption that the church should come together also showed up last week in verse 19. I'll remind you of it. I'll put it on the screen. You can read it there. Paul writes, nevertheless, in church. Underline that if you like underlining things. In church. I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, I highlight that phrase in church, really important. The NLT, if you like reading the NLT, the New Living Translation, it translates that phrase in church as in a church meeting. Uh, in fact, if you remember last week, one of the great concerns of Paul was what it would look like if a unbeliever or an outsider came into the gathering and saw all of you speaking in tongues without interpretation. Paul said they would think you're not. So he was concerned about the gathering and assumed that it would take place. But some questions coming out of this. 
And some, again, of these questions are going to seem rather obvious, but I think they're important to ask. So let me ask them. The first is, is the church a building? Again, obvious question. No, this is a building. You're the church. So the church isn't a building. Number one, we are the church. The people are the church. A second question, do you go to church? Well, again, the answer is no. You don't go to church um, because we are the church and you never stop being the church. And therefore, we don't go. We exist as the church. And yet, when Paul writes in church in verse 19, he is not referring to the church in general. He doesn't write in the church. He writes in church and ecclesia. There's no the there. In church. So he's not writing about the church in general, but the corporate coming together of a local church body. In other words, why am I hammering down on this? Well, I'm hammering down on this because I actually don't think it's entirely wrong to say that we go to church. If we mean the specific coming together of the church, this, that we're going to this, we're going to the gathering of the body together while also recognizing that we are always the church, whether we are gathered or scattered, where I do have an issue, small issue. I don't push into it too hard. It's not a, I'm not going to divide over it. But where I do have an issue is when people say things like, I'll meet you at the church. And they're talking about the building, not this. I'll push back on that because again, the church isn't this. It's you scattered and now coming together, affirming this particular mark, this coming together of the church. The author of Hebrews writes, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. And it continues to be the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've been reading a book, or I read a book, um, Couple of, a couple of months ago now called D-Church. I don't know the subtitle of it, but it's basically a book talking about the great exodus in the United States over the last 25 years of people who have left the church. 40 million people, according to the study, have left the church over the last 25 years. Going back to my previous point about why this is so important, the number one reason people are no longer a part of the church, believe it or not, isn't because they've had a disappointing experience. Not COVID, wasn't COVID. Number one reason, again, going back to my previous point, is they moved, and in their move, they never got involved again. And one month led to two months, to six months, to two years, three years. And what the author of Hebrews writes here is, don't neglect coming together. Don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. some. One more quick comment on this before we move to a second mark. Acts chapter 2 describes one of the marks of the early church being their devotion to the fellowship. Uh, they met together in the temple, it says. They met together in their homes. We should have that same devotion. But I know when I say that, I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, you're here already, right? Um, so why am I bringing it up? I'm bringing it up because, believe it or not, people watch us during the week. They listen to us, they watch, we've got cameras back there. And so I'm going to ignore you 
for a while. I'm going to speak to the two or three that watch us. Okay. Look in the camera and say to you, we are following you too. We're, we're, we're chasing you. Guys, you can laugh at that. We're chasing you. We're not. We're not. But in all seriousness, just look into my not pretty face. Just look at my face. I can't implore you enough with all pastoral seriousness and pastoral love that if you're following us, but you're not a part of a local good church, find one, go to one, give yourself to one. And I know part of the reason, yes, perhaps where you are, there isn't a good church, but oftentimes people make the mistake of comparing the church they're going to or checking out now with past experiences. And if it doesn't measure up to that same level, they call it not a good church when in fact it is faithful and it is good. And there is things that we're going to look at today. So I want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you strongly in that. We need to be involved in a, a local body. A second mark is brotherhood. The question that begins our passage is what then brothers? Now, brothers is a, a generic term. Uh, the word in, in the Greek is adelphos. Um, our equivalent today is brethren. Uh, it's a word, a generic word, like I said, that can speak to both brothers and sisters. You probably have a footnote in your Bible that says just that. But when we use the word brethren today, we don't just mean brothers or men or male. We're a Mennonite brethren church, for crying out loud. So we're made up of men and women. This is the idea that Paul has here. It's a, it's a word that can literally be translated near kinsmen or close kin, which means what? It means that when we come together, we come together as family. And we are. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted as a firstborn son. With all of the rights and privileges that come with being a firstborn son. Firstborn sons, at the time of this writing, this letter written by Paul had all rights, all privileges. So we want to keep that, that, that language of firstborn sons, because if you are in Christ, that means Christ is in you, which means everything that is in Christ is in you, including what? Sonship. As adopted sons, we have the same father, and Jesus is our brother. He is the only natural son. He is the only begotten son, but we are adopted sons into the family. And he, Jesus, isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Just listen to what John writes in his prologue in the first 18 verses of the first chapter of John. Just listen to what he writes in, in verses 11 and 12. Jesus came to his own, speaking of the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that phrase, his name, speaks to not just believing in the name of Jesus, but believing in who Jesus is, the entirety of who he is, what he accomplished, his declarations, his fulfillment, what he calls us to. If you believe in his name, you receive Jesus. And what is the outcome? He gives us the right to become children of God. 
But this reference to brotherhood doesn't only speak of who we are, but how we are to relate to one another now. For example, Paul writes in Romans 12.10 that we are to love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And so when I talk about the mark of brotherhood, I'm talking as much about the kind of affection that should mark us as much as anything else. And I was reflecting on this this week in preparation for this morning, and I actually think we do a pretty good job of this at at Midtown. I'm sure we can do better. And and if that hasn't been your experience, then I'm sorry to hear that. That certainly isn't our heart. But I can say personally, I'll just speak about myself personally in in this regard, that I have been a part of a few churches over the years, and I've never felt more brotherly and sisterly love and affection than I have at Midtown. And that's not to be disparaging on any of the other churches. They were good churches, but I just say that to bless you and to encourage you that let's be known by our love. I mean, before I get up on Sundays here, I almost get hugged out. You know what I mean? There's a lot of hugging going on in the lobby. I love it. It's great. We care for each other. We pray for each other. And we, we check in on each other. Yes, we can do better. And yes, again, if that's not been your experience, please know that that is our heart. That is our desire. We want to be committed to that and grow in that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One more thing attached to this before we look at a third mark. This is one of four times that Paul addresses the Corinthians as brothers in chapter 14. He does it in verse 6. Verse 20, our verse, verse 26, and we'll see it again next week in verse 39. I highlight that because each use of brothers begins or is connected to new and often difficult teaching. Where where Paul has to get in the grill of the Corinthian body. But he always does it with the affection of a brother. He does it addressing them as brothers to remind them, you're family, we're family. So affection with a hard word. Both can be true, you know. You can have brotherly affection and still bring a strong word. In fact, brotherly affection is willing to bring a strong word when necessary, or it's not really brotherly affection. A third mark is participation. Go back to verse 26, if you don't mind. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So lots going on here. Five things Paul mentions. Let's quickly look at each of the five. The first one that Paul mentions is a hymn. When you come together, each one has a hymn. Now, I don't think Paul literally thought that each person coming would have a hymn because that would lead to a very long gathering. If each of us brought a hymn that we had to sing in the same way that each one isn't bringing a lesson or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. What I believe Paul is talking about here is each one is gifted to each one who is gifted and involved in that area of the gathering, bring something beginning with those who are to bring hymns. What does hymns speak to? Well, it speaks to worship. 
He mentioned praise back in verse 15 as well. And so one of the marks of the church coming together under this umbrella mark of participation is worship. Worship should mark the coming together of a church. In a, in a text that we're going to come back to a little bit later, uh, one more time, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when we come together, we learn here. It doesn't just have to be hymns. It could be spiritual songs. It could be psalms put to music, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. So not only should worship mark the gathering of a church, it should mark anyone who is spirit-filled. Being spirit-filled should lead to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As Jesus said to the woman at the well, the Father is seeking worshipers, not just followers, not just attenders, worshipers. The next thing that Paul mentions is a, a lesson. Each would bring a lesson. This probably refers to, although there is debate over this, a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, gifts that we've looked at as well, though there again is debate over this. It may refer to teaching and the gift of teaching. Regardless, a time of instruction and application should be a part of a coming together of the church, not just opinions given, not just thoughts shared, not just conversation taking place. There should be a lesson taught. There should also be a revelation, which is what Paul mentions next. In context, this probably refers to prophecy, but it too could refer to wisdom or knowledge, as some suggest. There's some ambiguity, and I think that's okay. What we do know for sure is that teaching should always be based on a text we are to preach and teach the word of God. And prophecy comes by way of spontaneous revelation of God. The next thing that Paul mentions are tongues. This is a spiritual language that is unknown to the speaker and unknown to the listener without interpretation. So this is not the tongues that are mentioned in Acts 2. The tongues mentioned in Acts 2 is a language that everybody understands regardless of their native language. That's not what this is, which is why Paul mentions interpretation next in this list of five. If this tongue, as we saw last week, does not have an interpretation, then it should not be part of the coming together, which is actually very helpful to us because what this tells us is that tongues should not be a part of the local church without interpretation, meaning they're not essential as other things are but we are open to them with, again, interpretation. A couple of comments at this point, just to help, especially UCG leaders who will be leading this coming week. One, this is not an, an exhaustive list. It can't be. Uh, there is no mention of prayer here. There's no, no mention of the public reading of scripture, which is something that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 2. There's no mention of the Lord's Supper either which back in chapter 11, Paul said, we are to observe and partake in when we come together. No mention of sitting under the teaching of the apostles, which is another mark that marked the church as pointed out in Acts 2. Additionally, there is no mention of elders who labor in preaching and teaching as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 5. But that's okay, 
Because the fact that this is not an exhaustive list is telling and should guide how we approach and apply it. And therefore, I think we need to be careful in building our entire pattern for the church gathering around just this one text. There have been other places where this has been talked about in the New Testament letters that are, that are ours and we should look to as well as we build, build a pattern for the church gathering. To paraphrase D.A. Carson, some of you are familiar with D.A. Carson, one of the best New Testament theologians of our day. To paraphrase him, he says this, verse 26, the one we've been in thus far and the verses that follow that we'll get to in just a second, aren't most concerned about telling us everything that went on in the Corinthian gathering. What they point to was what is to be held up as most important when the church gathers and uses their gifts. And we'll look at that in just a moment in the verses that follow. But a second thing that I want to say, especially to you CG leaders, to guide you a little bit in this, I don't, and this is for all of us, obviously, as well. I don't want to ignore the beauty of what we see here and the spontaneity described here and the challenge and the encouragement it brings. I mean, there is spirit-led sharing here. There's mutual encouragement here. What's described in verse 26 is active participation and the use of gifts and talents. And I think we need to wrestle with this. We need to consider this. What does this mean for us? And yes, in concert with other passages that speak to this topic, but wrestle with it nonetheless. You're going to do that this week. But I also would say that I don't think the gifts and talents we have need to be restricted to the gathering, but that the total life of the church is an allowance for us to use our gifts and talents in informal times and formal times, on Sunday mornings or during the week, in the lobby, when we pray up here, when we serve at youth or kids ministry, when we meet in our CGs or Bible studies, when we go out for coffee with someone, all of those allow us opportunity to use our gifts, to pray with somebody, encourage someone, extend mercy to someone. Perhaps they need help financially and you have the gift of giving and you just help them out. That's body life. And I think the body seven days a week allow us the great opportunity to put our gifts into practice. A fourth mark, again, five marks that I'll give. The fourth is edification. Look how verse 26 ends. Paul writes there, let all things be done for building up. Building up, the word edification. This going back to the previous point is what is most important to Paul. This is where his heart beats the most as it comes to this topic in chapters 12 to 14. And that's why I don't think Paul sat down to write a finely detailed template for what we should do in the gathering. His main emphasis is why we do what we do and why the gifts are given in the first place. And why were they given? For the building up of the body. As he wrote back, in chapter 12, verse 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Meaning what, Midtown? Every hymn, every lesson, every revelation, every tongue, every interpretation, every prayer, every word. 
be done so that the body would grow and mature into further Christ-likeness. And all we do, the higher way, all we do prompted by love, love for God and love for others. You see, Midtown, our gifts aren't meant to be hoarded. They're not to be buried. They're not to be used for self-glory. They're to be used to serve one another and for the glory of God. And they're meant to be used. So to borrow from Peter, use them and use them with all your might. A final mark. Order. O-R-D-E-R, order. Take a look at verses 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and to speak to himself and to God. Let me get a little bit personal with you at this point under this last mark. One of the things that I struggle with and have struggled with over the years in, in regards to some charismatic movements is the Holy Spirit is often treated like a sort of cool, slightly out of control member of the Trinity that you have the, sort of the, the father, very staid, right? Proper, reserved. You have the really nice son, super gracious, right? Really nice son. And then you have sort of the hip Holy Spirit. Do you know what I mean? And, and he's, a bit about, he's a bit out of control. Like he blows where he blows, does what he does. Right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So no restrictions. Father wants him home by 1130. He comes home half past three. Right? That's the Holy Spirit. That's his role in the, in the Trinity. I know I'm talking like a fool, but do you get my point? I said earlier that we would go back to Ephesians 5. Let me just take you to verse 18. Paul writes in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I, I take you here one more time because some interpret this to mean that being filled with the Spirit is literally, literally like being drunk with wine. So you're out of control. You're stumbling around, you're falling around, falling down, you're not making sense, you can barely talk. That's how they define this. That's how they translate this, interpret this. Even though one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Meaning what? What does Paul want us? What's the connection? Well, what does Paul mean? Well, that in the same way that alcohol controls someone they, when they drink to excess, so does the Spirit control someone when he or she is filled by him. Meaning there isn't a lack of self-control. There's a demonstration of self-control. And yet there are many who would say that they don't agree with that interpretation, meaning that being spirit-filled is like being drunk. There are some who still treat the presence of the spirit as being almost uncontrollable and without boundaries. After all, we don't want to put God in a box, right? 
And I agree with that. But he has revealed himself in a book. And what that book says is that, yes, we should expect spontaneity from the Holy Spirit. Some of the gifts of the Spirit are revelation gifts, and they come in a moment of time. And I want that, mid-10, I want that. I expect that. I've experienced that. And I know many of you have too. We should be people who walk in step with the Spirit and should be ready for the unexpected. And we should be ready for U-turns in life. I want words. I want prophecies. I want promptings. I, I want dreams. I want visions. I want more of the Holy Spirit and his fruit in my life. As Jesus says, pray to the Father about and he will give to those who ask. I want his power. I want his filling. I want that for you. I want that for me. I want that for this ministry. But what's also clear in verses 27 and 28 is that tongue speakers have control over themselves. And this control shows up in the order of how Paul wants the gift to function in the church. Let two or three speak at most, but one at a time. But if no one is present to interpret, then let them keep silent, which means what? It means that the same spirit who prompts tongues also empowers self-control over tongues. To borrow from one commentator, there is a sweet tension between the spirit who prompts the gift and the person to whom the gift, of, the gift is given. This call to order carries on with the gift of prophecy. Look at verses 29 to 31. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. A few things here really quickly. One is, just because God gives you a word doesn't mean it needs to be shared, at least not then. Again, I also want you to hear the call for order and control. This is backed up in verse 32. Put your eyes in verse 32. Paul goes on and says, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Spirits of prophets, that refers to the gift, the gift of prophecy. And what Paul says is, look, the gift is controlled, subject to the prophet. Second thing to point out, all prophecies need to be weighed. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold on to what is good. Weighed by who? Who evaluates? Who's, who's the one who tests? A lot of debate over this. My answer, take it for what it's worth, is the congregation. The congregation weighs, most likely, I believe this is what it refers to, although if you come back next week, I think there is some restriction in that, and I double-dog dare you to come back next week as we carry on in chapter 14. Three, third thing to point out from this last few verses Verse 31 saying that you can all prophesy doesn't mean that all in the gathering for not all have the gift of prophecy, but probably referring to the two or the three that have come with a revelation to that particular coming together. And yet I bring this up because all should remind us that there is no restriction who is given this gift. All may not prophesy, but all can without restriction, meaning men, women, old, young, Slave free. 
as we've looked at. And four, prophecy is given so that all may learn and be encouraged, which is Paul's heartbeat. The building up of the body. Do it this way so everybody can be encouraged and not confused. And what's the motive behind all of this? All of what Paul has said in our text, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What this means is the pattern of two or three and one at a time and in order and control over the gift testifies to who God is. It paints a picture. It gives us a glimpse of who God is because God doesn't bring confusion and chaos. He brings order. It's been that way from the beginning. He speaks light into darkness peace into distress. And when we gather, what should mark us is a testimony of who God is. There shouldn't be a lack of self-control and feeling of confusion and a display of something like drunkenness. That's not God. That's the enemy. But when I say that, we aren't to be dead on the vine either. And this is my problem with some non-charismatic movements because it's almost like they ignore the work of the Spirit, some at least. Because we are to be people of worship. We're to be people of feasts. We're to be people of celebrations. We're to be people of joy. We're to be people of grace. We're to be people of laughter, not gloom in the law, light, not darkness. Order and self-control doesn't mean a lack of expectancy and a, a lack of excitement. We're to rejoice, we're to clap, we're to dance. We're to raise our hands. We're to be people of wonder and awe. There should be times as we walk with Jesus where we cry out, who is this man that commands the waves and the sea? As we saw from last week, there should be times where we should fall on our faces in response to God's grace and just worship. My time is done. So to wrap up, if you move from Vancouver, don't, but if you do, if you move from Vancouver, what should you look for? What should mark the church that you check out and consider? Well, I'll remind you, the first is they need to come together. They need to come together. Don't neglect it. When you neglect the coming together, you don't grow upward or outward. You grow inward. You grow inward. They need to be marked by brotherhood, a family that displays brotherly affection. They need to be marked by participation as each has been given a gift. Use it. No passengers on this journey. No passengers. They need to be people committed to edification, all things being done for the common good and to make much of Jesus. And they need to be a place of order. For self-control, interestingly, is a display of the Spirit's work in us. Did you hear what I just said? Self-control. What is self-control? Control of self. Self-control is a display of the fruit of the Spirit in us. It's a display of the Spirit 
in us. So which is it? Is it self-control or is it the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. God working in you as you work out, as we've seen in the past, you doing what God is doing, God is doing what you're doing. Chew on that. Meditate on that, that interpersonal, that intimacy, that weaving in us, working in so we work out, but what we work out is him working out. It's beautiful, beautiful. My time is done. I need to pray. Would you rise as we respond? As I mentioned in my message just a few minutes ago, one of the marks of the gathering of the church is the participation of the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, when you come together, it's the Lord's Supper that you are to participate in. And so we call you to participate in our time of response. We're going to worship together. We're going to sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, I think. Maybe not all three, but we're going to sing together. That's for, that's for certain. We're going to worship. We're going to pray. If you want to pray with somebody, this is part of the gathering of the church. We pray together. And then the Lord's Supper, the supper that he has given us, which is a picture. It's a time of remembrance, a time of examination. It's a time of worship. It's all of it. It's a, a meal for those of you who are followers of Christ. So if you are in Christ, this is a meal we invite you to participate in after examining yourself. All right, examining your heart, come and prepare your heart as you come to receive grace upon grace. Jesus is with us, and so we want to remember him. Take the piece of bread that is in the basket, dip it into the wine or the juice, which is there for you, symbols of the body and blood of Jesus, and let's remember him together. On the back end, Sam will come up and close our time. Let, let me pray as we go into this time. So, Father, now we do. We respond to the teaching of your word, not my word, your word. We thank you for how you inspired Paul to write down the words that we have seen today. We want to be people devoted to the apostles' teaching, and we do that today. And we want to be people also that don't just hear but do. So I pray that this time, as we go forward, that you'd work and speak and we'd be obedient children, leaving what we need to leave, going to what we need to go to, to the glory of your name and our good. I pray that you'd be pleased with this time. Pour your spirit out on this time, and I pray for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.